Before we jump into today's episode, if you're not already subscribed to this podcast, do subscribe and give this podcast a rating. It helps tremendously. And without further ado, let's get into it. And it has been obvious to me for as long as I can remember that whatever it is, I am that. And whatever I am is also what stars and galaxies, space and energy are. My whole work in religion and philosophy has been to convey this feeling to others and to show that our apparent separateness from what there is and all that there is arises in the main from our failure to notice space as a vital reality, which is just as important as the negative pole in an electric circuit. Although this feeling has not protected me from a vast amount of folly and confusion, just as it would not restore sight to a blind man, it has nevertheless delivered me from basic existential anxiety. It is simply that I think people would be much happier and more at home in this world if they felt as I do, that I have no other self than this whole universe. I am not controlling it volitionally anymore that I am controlling my autonomic nervous system. And at the same time, it is not befalling or happening to any separate me as its observant victim. There is simply the whole process happening of itself, spontaneously and with every pair of eyes, it takes a fresh look at itself. This happening is what I call God and what is essentially is beyond all possible conception. I feel it most intensely in a stillness of mind where words and ideas are not running around in my brain. This is an excerpt from In My Own Way, an autobiography by Alan Watts. And Alan Watts is a philosopher and the one who popularized Buddhist, Taoist, and Hindu and Zen philosophy in the West. He's inspired and influenced some of the greatest thinkers and inventors of our time, including Joseph Campbell, Eckhart Tolle, George Lucas, and Steve Jobs. And in this autobiography, there are quite a lot of familiar names that pop up. Christmas Humphrey, D.T. Suzuki, Aldous Huxley, and Timothy Leary. So I came across Alan Watts for the first time quite a few years ago. And in one of these lectures, there was something that he said when he was trying to teach his listeners the idea that this whole universe that you're experiencing, this whole reality that you're experiencing is and possibly an illusion. Or you have to remember what is a Buddhist. What he says is this. Imagine you could dream 75 years and in this dream, you could dream anything you wanted. What would you dream? Right? You would probably dream that you could do whatever you wanted, all your wishes, all your wants, you would attain. After having done this for multiple days, weeks, and after a few months, what will happen is that you will get bored of this dream because in your dream, you're doing exactly what it is that you wanted and you're getting everything that you wanted just as you wanted it to happen. So then as a dreamer, you'll get bored and through this boredom, you will want to inject some form thrill, some form of excitement, some adventure. So then you'll start to do more dangerous things, right? Things that will put your life on the line, something that will make you feel alive. Because after all, you can dream 75 years in a single night. So then your dreams will start to get more adventurous, more dangerous. But again, after a while, this is going to get boring to you. What will happen then is that the next time you dream, is that you will dream of the life that you are currently living. A life where you have forgotten that you are the dreamer, that you have forgotten that you are the one you can dream whatever dream you wanted. Because this dream that you are living in, this life that you are living in, is the sort of dream that one would dream if you wanted to experience life in all its fullness. Because here you have forgotten that you are the dreamer, that you are the one put yourself in this situation. So when I heard this for the first time, I had never heard anything like this before. And that was what got me interested in Alan Watts. You know, and I'd listened to quite a few of Watts' lecture before. And so when I picked up 
in my own way. I was very curious to learn more about him, to see things from his perspective. Because one thing you learn about Alan Watts is that he lived quite a paradoxical life. When you listen to his lecture, you realize he's wise, he is down to earth. But then when you learn about his life, at least for me, I couldn't understand how a mystic, a great teacher would struggle so much with his addiction to alcohol and why and how he continuously lived what he would admit an Epicurean lifestyle. And eventually, he would die in his cottage as a result of his alcoholism, though the circumstances of his death is still unknown because his body was cremated three hours. And so when I began to read in my own way, I started to see that Alan Watts was obviously a much more complicated man. And he wasn't simply just a great teacher and a mystic, but he was also somebody who was trying to understand how to live in this world, how to live as honestly as possible, how to live a life where he was not being manipulated by others, he was not being manipulated by his ego, and most importantly, he wanted to live a life where there was no separation between what he believed and how he acted. And he obviously doesn't do this perfectly, which we'll see. But I think that is the beauty of life in that we are all, in one sense, like Alan Watts. We, that we all live a sort of paradoxical life. So very early on in the book, he says, For my life has been an attempt to reconcile what are supposed to be opposites. And my name, Alan, means harmony in Celtic and hound in Anglo-Saxon. Accordingly, my existence is and has been a paradox, or better, a coincidence of opposites. On the one hand, I am a shameless egoist. I like to talk, entertain, and hold the center of the stage and can congratulate myself that I have done this to a considerable extent by writing widely read books, by appearing on radio and television, and by speaking before enormous audiences. On the other hand, I realize quite clearly that the ego named Alan Watts is an illusion a social institution, a fabrication of words and symbols without the slightest substantial reality, that it will be utterly forgotten within 500 years, if our species lasts that long, and that my physical organism will shortly pass off into the dust and ashes, and I have no illusion that some sort of proprietary and individual soul, spook or ghost, will outlast it. That is our whole life. Our life is to reconcile the light and the shadow. Right? That Confucius, when he says that when you get to the age of 65, you should be where what you desire in your heart and what is right are the same thing and that they align fully. And that, I think, is what Alan Watts tries to do his whole life. Whether he succeeds or not, we don't know. And this plays very strongly in him trying to bridge the Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy, Eastern religion and Western religion. So he says later on, if I am asked to define my personal taste in religion, I must say that they lie between Mahayana Buddhism and Taoism, with a certain leaning towards Vedanta and Catholicism, or rather the Orthodox Church of Eastern Europe. But I am still more at home in the serene and non-militant atmosphere of such Buddhist sanctuaries as Koyasan and Chioni, with deep and Saronis chant is measured by the easy pulse of a wooden drum where pines and maples stand beyond the open screens and the smoke of aloe wood hangs in the air. And Alan Watts really does try to reconcile these things together. And though his life is not a life that most people would say is a life of a, a mystic or a life of a great teacher, which we'll see why, and at least in his teaching he tries to pass on this idea that when you transcend these institutional religions, that you see that what ultimately Hinduism, Taoism, Christianity is trying to distill onto its people is the same thing. And that is his goal in life. So he says, My own work, though it may seem at times to be a system of ideas, is basically an attempt to describe mystical experiences, not of formal visions and supernatural beings but of reality as seen and felt in a silence of words and minding. And what's clear is that this type of work that he does frustrates and angers many people on both sides of the continent, right? 
people in the West, the Christians, a lot of them see him as a heretic, as somebody simply trying to peddle Eastern philosophy with self-help dropped in. And on the Eastern side, some of the Swamis and the Yogis see his lifestyle as totally at odds with the teaching. And as such, you cannot take his words seriously. And this is a lesson for us because people look at your life and will judge you based on your life and how you live your life. And hence, it is important to live a life that is consistent with what you teach and what you say you practice. But Alan Watts tries to separate himself from the actions that he takes. And I think partially that's because he sees everything as an illusion. He sees Alan Watts, the individual, as an illusion. Because the idea within Hinduism is that all is an illusion and that the only reality is Brahman. And so for Watts, from reading this autobiography, it seems like he is able to make that separation, make that jump between the life that he lives and the teachings that he imparts because he doesn't see it as contradictory. So he says in the middle of the book, my vocation in life is to wonder about at the nature of the universe. This leads me into philosophy, psychology, religion, and mysticism, not only as subjects to be discussed, but also as things to be experienced. And thus I make an at least tacit claim to be a philosopher and a mystic. Some people therefore expect me to be their guru or messiah or exemplar and are extremely disconcerted when they discover my wayward spirit or elements of irreducible rascality and say to their friends, how could he possibly be a genuine mystic and be so addicted to nicotine and alcohol or have occasional shudders of anxiety or be sexually interested in women or lack enthusiasm for physical exercise or have any need for money. So what you're seeing is him trying to separate his teachings from his life. And then later on, on page 263, he says, I make it very clear to those who attend that my role is more that of a physician than of minister for the former works to get rid of his clients and the latter to keep them in a permanent following. One thing for certain is true that the author the teacher will always be inferior to their own ideas because someone can say something extremely profound but not know or understand what they have said. And that statement that they have made will outlast them. And as Watts mentioned, it was his alcoholism and his love for women and his love for sex that was at odds with so many of the Eastern thinkers, the Eastern sages. There was this looming question of his authenticity as a teacher, and whether the wisdom that he was imparting as a mystic was to be listened to. Because when you look at it, the man's life, he's not living a life that you would consider mystical or, or enlightened or somebody who's attained nirvana. And so he says in the preface, I have been a sedentary and contemplative character, an intellectual, a Brahmin, a mystic, and also somewhat of a disreputable Epicurean who has had three wives, seven children, and five grandchildren. I cannot make up my mind whether I am confessing or boasting. And later on, he goes on to say, because at the same time, I am an unrepentant sensualist. I am an immoderate lover of women and the delights of sexuality, of the greatest French, Chinese, and Japanese cuisine, of wines and spiritous drinks, of smoking cigars and pipes, of gardens, forests, and oceans, of jewels and paintings, of colorful clothes, and of finely bound and printed books. The fact that Watts is honest with himself and honest with the reader is, is something to be admired. But at times I read it and think, is he being like the underground man from Notes from Underground, the previous episode to this, where the underground man says things because he's bragging, and even though he's honest, he's saying it because he th knows that the reader will either laugh or be shocked at what he says. And at times in this autobiography, it feels that way. However, I think it's important to realize that with Watts, he, so he reveals to us what it means to be human in a very raw sense. Whether you agree with this lifestyle, I think the point is we are paradoxical creatures. 
you know, again, to bring up notes from the underground, Dostoevsky through the underground man says, human beings are irrational because at the height of when you know that something is not good for you, that is precisely when you go and do it. Yet I don't think that is an excuse to not live a life that is worthy of emulating. And that is not in line with what your beliefs are, what your and what your teachings are. And it's interesting because his own peers were split on this issue about what's his life and what's his teaching. So in the chapter of Journey to the Edge of the World, Watts mentions this, and I quote, The taking of sides on these matters was then, and probably still is, very complicated. Swami Prabhavananda and his Vedantists were all for asceticism and sexual abstinence and believe strongly in the efficacy of willpower, concentration, renunciation, and specific spiritual disciplines for attaining a mystical bliss impervious to suffering. Gerald Hurd was of approximately the same opinion, though he had just suffered a rude shock when the star pupils of his co-educational monastery in Trabuco Canyon had decided to get married. The Krishnamurti people were vaguely embarrassed by sex, yet held that asceticism, and spiritual disciplines were fraudulent, being ways of exalting egoism by denying it. Aldous Huxley, with his infinitely curious and open mind, was wobbling on the edge of decision. The Zen contingent had no qualms about sex, but went full tilt for rough discipline and meditation, dropping hints, however, that all this was like looking for the ox when you're riding it. The psychotherapeutic clan as good Freudians and Jungians, were all for healthy sex and self-acceptance, and with some subtle accommodations to social conventions. You know, even in that, there is an underlying theme that I see in, in that there has to be some sort of mastery that must occur. Even though the Jungians and the Freudians make it seem like if you've integrated your shadow, then you no longer need to do practice any form of self-discipline or spiritual discipline. However, I don't think this is either the case. There is still this idea of integrating. The integration requires a form of discipline, a form of practice that is consistent, and in so doing will be applied to the rest of your life. The one thing I enjoyed about you know Watts' book is that he's not naive. And he admits that previously when he was young, when he was a teenager, when he was in university, he was quite naive as to what the Western Christianity held for him. He believed that it was boring, that it was useless, that all clergymen were hypocrites, and therefore he's going to become a Buddhist because he believes that there's more mysticism there. And we'll get to that in a bit. However, he has this quote, and he says, Every Western enthusiast for the spiritual wisdom of India should face the fact that most Oriental holy men are no different from our own clergymen. Being human, they have the same share of dogmatists, bigots, hypocrites, gossips, and ecclesiastical politicians, so that one must regard the yellow robe with the same discrimination as the Roman collar and the black suit. A great reminder for us not to be infatuated by Eastern philosophy if you're in the West or Western philosophy if you're in the East, because ultimately, those who are preaching it are human, and as a result of it, None of these holy men, these clergymen, are going to reveal something to you that you could not discover for yourself. His early life plays an important role on him becoming a Buddhist. Watts goes to St. Nicholas for kindergarten, and then St. Hughes for his high school, and then ends up going to King's College because he gets a scholarship. But when he's very young, he gets baptized in the, into the Anglican Church. Not because he actually believes in it, but because his family practices it. Uh, and it's more so out of formality. So he says, But for myself, I had no heart for this. Onward Christian soldiers approach to life. It was thus that at the age of 15, as a scholar supported by the foundation of Canterbury Cathedral, the heart of the Church of England, I formally declared myself to be a Buddhist. As is coming to be known, Buddhism is not a religion, a way of obedience to someone else's rules, a regular vitae, but a method for clarifying and liberating one's state of consciousness. I had found myself in agreement with Lucretius that too much religion 
is apt to sway us into evils. So he starts to learn about Eastern philosophy through his mother, who was teaching children of parents who were out doing missionary work in India or in China or in Japan, and the children were left in the UK. And when the parents would come back, they would gift Alan Watts' mother different trinkets and different paintings from India or Japan or whatnot. And it was through this that he started learning about it. Then he meets Francis Crawshaw, who has a huge influence on Alan's life. And Crawshaw gave him access to his library. And Crawshaw also was willing to discuss philosophy with young Alan Watts. And that was a monumental shift in Alan's life. And the interesting thing is, Francis Crawshaw and his family take Alan Watts to travel Europe one summer. And it was through this travel that Watts realizes he's not interested in these trivial things like playing cricket, playing football, playing games. But instead, he was more interested in learning about philosophy, exploring different places, exploring new places. And it seems that Francis Crawshaw might have had more of an influence than Watts admits in this book. It seems like Francis Crawshaw loved wine and loved everything that's pleasurable. He was sort of an Epicurean. And so Watts' love for alcohol started quite early on, and I think it started on this trip. And I'm quoting from the book. The first thing that Francis Crawshaw did for me was to release me from the boiled beef culture of England and let me realize that I was at least a European. In 1929, he took me with his family to France via Jersey, sat me down in a cafe in Saint-Malo, and bought me my first drink. He, by the way, drank immense quantities of wine and would toss down a whole glass and then with a haughty sniff, gaze up into the air in a gesture of total detachment from things of this earth. He carried a red Moroccan wallet, as I myself do to this day, and one of those carved and brightly colored Mexican walking sticks. There's one person that he gets introduced to, or the works of whose has a profound impact on the trajectory of Watts' life. And so his friend Toby introduces him to D.T. Suzuki. And D.T. Suzuki is a very well-known Zen uh, teacher. And at this point, Watts is already reading works by different swamis. He's reading Indian philosophy. But it is D.T. Suzuki's work that influences the way Alan Watts perceives and understands mysticism. And by this point, he has completely abandoned his Christians, uh, abandoned Christianity and gone over to Buddhism. However, later on in his life, Watts admits that he may have, might have thrown the baby out with the bathwater when he rejected Christianity because he goes on to read Eckhart, the original Eckhart. He goes on to read Thomas Aquinas and some of the great mystics and realizes, he says, that the style of Christianity offered to us children contain no hint of mystical experience. And yet the paradox comes back. Even though he's, he's rejected Christianity, he goes on to say, I was still overly impressed with the spiritual authority of the Western and Christian traditions and was trying desperately to come to terms with my own cultural history. Wide reading in theology had shown me that Christian belief was by no means the shallow mythology that I had supposed it to be when, as a boy of 15, I had abandoned it for Buddhism. Though by no means disposed to do a complete about-face and recant my Buddhist sympathies, I felt for a time that I could almost completely accept the Christianity of, say, Etienne Gilson or Evelyn Underhill. Now, he says this when he's a priest, and we're going to get to that point. His internal struggle is and always has been him trying to balance two different, not opposing, traditions. That You have the East on the one side and the West on the other side. And so what ends up happening is Alan Watts becomes an Episcopalian priest. And he becomes an Episcopalian priest because his wife Eleanor has a vision. And she wants to understand this vision, so she goes to a priest who tries to tell her what it is. He never finds out what the priest actually tells her. But at the same time, Watts is starting to see that Christianity could be understood in a mystical sense, which he had previously rejected because the mysticism was not in Christianity. 
and Watts obviously being a Buddhist and being immersed in Taoism and Hinduism wants to unify these two different sides. And so he says, however, the vision coincided, meaning his wife's vision, with my own growing realization that Christianity might be understood as a form of that mystical and perennial philosophy which it appeared in almost all times and places. One could go behind the screen of literal dogma to the inner meaning of symbols to the level at which Eckhart and Sankara, St. Teresa, Ramakrishna, St. Dionysus, and Nagarjuna are talking the same language. Furthermore, it struck me that I was on the way to becoming a misfit and an oddity in Western society. A 26-year-old guru who might make a living only by the ignominious ruse of persuading wealthy old ladies that I was a reincarnation of Padma Sambhava or Master Kut Humi. But it is crazy that he's only 26. He's very, very young. And as a result of that, he's going to come up, meet some friction from people who assume that Alan Watts, the author, you know, who's writing books like The Meaning of Happiness, The Spirit of Zen, is somebody who's not even lived 30 years. So he's realizing that Christianity has this mystical side. He wants to be able to teach and continue this life of reading, researching, teaching, and has this epiphany that perhaps you should become a priest. But he doesn't want to become any old priest, right? He doesn't want to join the evangelical fundamentalist brand because obviously he's not going to fit in. He can't go become a Catholic priest because one, he's married, and two, well, that's it. That's the main one. He can't he can't be a Catholic priest because he's married. And he realizes that, hey, he could be an Episcopalian priest. And the Episcopalians are basically the American ver- the American version of an Anglican. And I quote the apparent anomaly of the whole situation was not unconnected with the problem of what brand of Christianity I should use. Being married, I could not become a Roman Catholic priest, quite aside from my objection to the, a denomination which puts the virtue of obedience higher than the virtue of charity. As for standard Protestants, Presbyterian, Methodist, Congregationalist, and Baptist, it would afflict me with its folksy lack of color. It simply had to be Episcopalian, the awkward denominational label for the American branch of the Anglican Communion, which, as is not so well known by outsiders, is the most liberal form of Christianity. For within the charitable embrace of this communion, you could be a Rocco Catholic, a stately high churchman, a virtual Presbyterian, a Marxist, and even a Theosophist, just so long as you keep loosely to the Book of Common Prayer in the conduct of services and take care not to play around openly with any of the ladies on the altar guild. So him and his wife, Eleanor, start looking at this. And and in 1945, he becomes a priest. And he remains a priest for five years. In those years, he taught his congregation mysticism, tried to teach him meditation. He tried to integrate Zen Buddhism with Christianity. But he found that he was not himself. He found that he was not being honest with his thoughts, what he truly believed, and the way he wanted to teach others. He felt like he was always being constricted. And he also didn't see himself as a priest. right? He was having this battle. So he says, To be precise, I am not so much a priest as a shaman. The difference is that whereas a priest is a duly ordained corporate officer and a caste member in an agrarian culture, a shaman is a loner who gets his thing from the wilds and is usually found in hunting cultures. Priests follow traditions, but shamans originate them, though truly original traditions stem from the origins of nature and thus have much in common. The shaman follows his own weird or destiny and is thus considered a weird fellow in the sense of transcending social conventions. He is out of this world or otherworldly and is credited with magical powers because he represents the uncanny and gets along in life without going by the usual rules and traveling by the beaten path. It is thus that when I am successful, conventional people ascribe it to pure luck. So five years as a priest, he doesn't consider himself as one. He does these sort of unorthodox because he sees himself as a you know, as a shaman and not so much as uh, somebody who is part of the institution. But he is having this internal struggle with him, with himself. 
And on the one hand, he's struggling with himself, even though he admits that the Alan Watts that he knows that that people know is an illusion. But at the same time, this illusion, this illusory Alan Watts has his convictions, has his beliefs that must be lived out honestly. And so during this time, he and his wife end up getting a divorce. The community uh, starts to gossip. He's starting to feel some tension around this and realizes he must do work outside of organized religion. He says, This was then the final straw in the slow process of realizing that I would have to go it alone and work outside the sphere of organized religion. Upon returning to Evanston, this was June 1950, I found the bishop's letter of inquiry, to which I responded with a careful letter of resignation, the substance of which I later circulated among my friends. Therefore, I disappeared from Northwestern to the seclusion of a farmhouse in Millbrook, New York, near the desolatory town of Pugskeepsie, where during the six months following, I wrote a book appropriately called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And I respect that he was able to stand up and put in his resignation. And I think that is something more people should be willing to do, to stand up for the truth, to, be, to have courage, to not be afraid of taking a stance and be able to take the risk, losing friends, being criticized, because it is only in doing that do you find yourself, do you find your strength. And I'm going to read excerpts of his letter of resignation. My dear friends, after long and careful thought, I have had to take up a step which will perhaps be most disturbing to many of you, though to others it may come as no surprise. I have come to the conclusion that I cannot remain in either the ministry or the communion of the Episcopal Church. In retrospect, I believe that I entered the ministry under the influence of a tendency which has become quite widespread a tendency to seek refuge from the confusion of our times by giving in to a kind of nostalgia. In a world where all the traditions in which men have found security are crumbling, the mind seeks peace and sanity in an attempt to return to a former state of faith. It envies the inner calm and certitude of an earlier age where men could put absolute and childlike trust in the authority of the church and in the ordered beauty of an ancient doctrine. Undoubtedly, the form of Christian doctrine and worship contains the most profound truth, but I am afraid that the attempt to maintain and revive it is as ineffectual resistance to inevitable change. For so many people, the form no longer conveys their meaning, and the language they speak is both archaic and cumbersome. Others want to believe and try to convince themselves that they do so, but their faith has that hollow self-consciousness so characteristic of the modern convert. Since the mind is acting a role untrue to its inmost state, you cannot imitate fate. And when forms of belief, like all other finite things, begin to die, the effort to revive them is imitation. It doesn't ring true, but the, form, but the forms perish, not only because they are mortal, but also because the spirit within them is breaking them as a bird breaks from its shell. I'm going to skip ahead. In so far as the church is committed to a desire for and clinging to authority, permanent spiritual safety, and absolute guides of conduct, it is clinging to its own death. By such means, belief in God, the hope of immortality, the quest for salvation, become only escapes from the inner emptiness and insecurity which most of us feel in the depths of our being when confronted with the loneliness and transiency and the uncertainty of human life. But that inner emptiness is not a void to be filled with comforts. It is a window to be looked through. It is not an evil that life, our own life, flows, changes, and passes away. It is a revelation that prevents us from clinging to ourselves. For whoever lets go of himself finds God. The state of eternal life and oneness with God comes to pass like a miracle only when we release our grasp on every kind of spiritual security. To cling to security is only to cling to oneself and perish of strangulation. Again, I'm going to skip ahead. It has been my privilege to know priests of the church who are men of wonderful humility, but whether they intend it or not, 
Their assumption of that office usually becomes, in the eyes of laymen and the general public, a claim to spiritual authority and moral superiority. Beyond doubt, there are priests who speak with true authority and who are morally superior. But to claim such gifts vitiates them, even when the claim is tacit or derivative, and is a stumbling block to those who mistakenly cling to authority in their quest for security. For true authority says, let go. You will only find God if you do not try to possess Him. I must then do what lies in my power to renounce even tacit claim to superiority, whether spiritual or moral. For one reason, such a claim would be untrue. For another, the expectation that every clergyman be a superior exemplar is an aspect of that unfortunate moral self-consciousness which has so long afflicted the Western world. And skipping ahead, what I see is what life has shown me, that in fear I cling to myself, and that such clinging is quite futile. I have found that trying to stop the self-strangulation through discipline, belief in God, prayer, resort to authority, and all the rest is likewise futile. Trying not to be self, trying to realize an ideal is simply the original selfishness in another form. Worship as an expression of joy or thanksgiving, I can understand. But spiritual exercises or moral disciplines undertaken to raise oneself by one's own spiritual bootstraps are absurd, for they are based on the illusion that the I who would improve is different from the me who must be improved. And to ask for the grace to be so improved is merely an indirect form of the same thing. The more clearly I see this, the less choice I have in the matter. I cannot go on doing this. The more I am aware of the futility of myself, trying not to be selfish, of the contradiction of myself, even desiring or asking not to be selfish, or to love where I do not love, I have no choice but to stop it. And yet, at a deeper level, the more I see the futility of myself clinging to myself, I have no choice but to stop clinging. In this choiceless bondage, one is miraculously free. For where the actual possibility of I loving me is seen to be an illusion, the vicious cycle is broken, and there remains only the outflowing love which is called God. So that is the condensed version of the letter. It's much longer than this. I think that letter is very powerful, and I read and I've I've read that letter now three times. And what struck out to me was how passionate he is. But also, you could see that he was truly trying to be honest with himself, trying to be true to his belief and stand strong in his conviction. And I respect that because I think that is the way we should be in our lives. And I'm glad that he put the letter in, but he also put in letters from friends who responded to it. So a priest responds to it. And then his other friend responds to it. And then later on, one of his friends who's a professor responds to it. And I think that's probably the most beautiful letter in all of it. So I, uh, you should definitely go get this book and read that. So after he leaves the church, after he resigns, he goes on. Uh, he writes the book about insecurity. And he meets another woman, gets married. He goes and he starts teaching at the American Academy of Asian Studies, where he meets all sorts of people from different backgrounds. And he meets this one guy who becomes his friend, Swami Prabhavanda. And we've we've talked about Swami Prabhavanda because Swami Prabhavanda finds that the way Alan Watts lives is at odds with his teaching. And so there's an occasion where there's a tea party. And at the tea party, Swami Prabhavanda is there, his students are there, Krishnamurti students are there, Aldous Huxley's is there. And they're sitting down having tea when all of a sudden one of Swami's student says, Oh, Mr. Watts, I'd be so interested to know what you think about Krishnamurti. Just a brief aside, Krishnamurti, uh, I'm going to do a, an episode on him later on this year. But he is an Indian philosopher. He was raised by the Theosophical Society in, in India to be a world teacher. He was considered a messianic figure who's going to bring enlightenment to the world. But then he later on goes on and rejects this whole movement. He rejects having... Uh, students, he considered himself not a guru, not a teacher, and teaches that uh, to be free, you have to be free of everything, authority, doctrine, 
everything. And only then in this pathless path do you find freedom. Krishnamurti is friends with Alan Watts. So Alan Watts responds to the student by saying, yeah, Murti is an interesting guy. I think he's understood the spiritual life. At which Swami says, yeah, Krishnamurti is interesting, but his teaching is very misleading. He says that you can attain nirvana without actually doing any form of uh, spiritual practice or yoga. And this isn't true at all. And this starts a little back and forth. And this back and forth is interesting as it reveals Alan Watts' position on this, which we've hinted at and talked about. So I'm going to read this. Alan Watts says, No, indeed, if in fact there is something to be attained, your, upa- your Upanishad says very plainly, Tat van asi, you are that. So what is there to attain? Oh, no, 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 though Swami protested. There's all the differences in the world between being merely informed in words that this is so and realizing it truly, between understanding it intellectually and really knowing it. It takes a great deal of work to go from one state to the other state. And I personally agree with the Swami's position here, that there's a huge difference between knowledge and understanding. Right? You could have knowledge like the underground man, for example, had knowledge of what he was supposed to do, how he was how to live a good life, how to live a moral life. But he didn't do any of that. He did the opposite. And one of the qualms that Nassim Taleb in Skin in the Game, in the episode we did, 003, he has with intellectuals and bureaucrats is they are simply people who have knowledge, right? Who, who talk but never practice. And he says, look, there's a big difference between somebody who talks and has knowledge but does not have understanding, that chasm, according to the Swami, uh, requires a great deal of work, and that work is spiritual discipline. But to this, Alan Watts says, So far as I can see, the more people consider themselves to have made progress in such work, the greater their spiritual pride. They are putting legs on a snake, congratulating themselves for bringing about, by their own efforts, a state of affairs which already is. Well, I wonder, mused Aldous Huxley. Isn't it rather curious that there has always been a school of thought in religion which attributes salvation or realization to an unmerited gift of divine grace rather than personal effort? Of course, said the Swami, there are those exceptional cases of people who seem to be born or suddenly endowed with realization, but we mustn't leave out of account the work that must have gone into it in their former lives. But that virtually cuts out the principle of grace altogether, I said. When Christians say that something comes about by the grace of God, Hindus and Buddhists say that it is so already and always has been. The self-Atman is the Godhead, Brahman. It has always been so from the very beginning, so that your very trying to realize it is pushing it away, refusing the gift, ignoring the fact. But this is ridiculous. The Swami objected. That amounts to saying that an ordinary, ignorant, deluded person is just as good or just as realized as an advanced yogi. Exactly, I say. And what advanced yogi would deny it? Doesn't he see the Brahman everywhere and in all people and all beings? You are saying, said the Swami, that you, you yourself, or just any other person can realize that you are Brahman just as you are without any spiritual effort or discipline at all? Just so. After all, one's very not realizing is, in its turn, also the Brahman. According to your own doctrine, what else is there? What else is real other than Brahman? Oh, Swami exclaimed, there was someone who came to Sri Ramakrishna with such talk, and he said, if that is your Brahman, I spit on it. Don't fool me. If you were truly one with Brahman and truly in Samadhi, you would be beyond suffering. You would not be able to feel a pinch. You can understand why the Swami would take the position that he takes. One, because he's put into place spiritual practices that has allowed him to get to a position where he understand, he, he's gone beyond knowledge and has understood and has experienced it. And Alan Watts, on the other hand, who we don't really know if he's actually experienced it, but to give him the benefit of doubt. He's able to experience the mystical form 
without having done any of the spiritual practices, which to me seems odd because historically in human history, there's always been this idea of spiritual practice, spiritual discipline to attain heights of consciousness, to, to have mystical experiences. And having said that, there is something with Watts when he points out to the Swami that, you know, your own doctrine says the whole world is an illusion, that the whole universe is Brahman. And as a result, everything in it is Brahman. And if you can realize that, then why do you need the spiritual practice? You know, that is a very thought-provoking comment that Alan Watt makes, that you don't need spiritual practices, that you don't need self-discipline to attain enlightenment. I will just say it seems odd that you wouldn't need any form of discipline because when you look outside of the spiritual life, you do need some form of ritual, some form of discipline, whether that's you going to the gym to put on mass, to put on strength, whether that's me practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, whether that's me painting, you need that form of consistent discipline for you to be able to grow and for you to be able to gain understanding. But to me, it seems like what Watts is saying is simply that you could pick up a paintbrush and start painting masterpieces, or you could step into the dojo and simply slap on a black belt and, and that you'll be better than anybody. Once you realize that you are indeed a black belt, that you are indeed very good, which is simply not the case. So similarly, with spiritual enlightenment, I think you need self, I think you need some form of discipline. And perhaps, you know, Watts is purposely not mentioning or using the word discipline, but I do think he must have implemented some form of it, assuming that he attained the states of mysticism. You know, he is somebody trying to balance the East and the West, but at the same time, the Easterners and the Westerners see him as a contradiction because he's on the extreme end of loving alcohol, loving women, loving sexuality, not putting in any sort of practice and discipline. But in the same sense, Watts' life just seems to be a magnified version of what we all do in our own lives, which is be inconsistent. He has this description of his friend and a Zen master named uh, Sokai An Saki. And he meets him later on after he's left the uh, Episcopalian church. And Saki, the Zen master, has conversations with Watson. They talk and discuss and teach each other. So what says of the Zen master, he was as humorously earthly as he was spiritually awakened. When I read that sentence, I paused and I reread that sentence over and over again, because there's something about it. There's something about how he describes this gentle Zen master. It describes a person who is both in one sense of this world and not of this world, to use the terminology that Jesus says. And so when what says of Saski, he was as humorously earthly as he was spiritually awakened. You know, it's describing a man who was awakened to spiritual understandings, but also continues to participate in this in the grand drama of this universe being in this world and not hating the world, being able to enjoy every moment of this world. And I would go so far as to state that that description of Sokian Saki is what Watts would have liked to be described as somebody who was down to earth, somebody who who was humorous and could enjoy life, but was also spiritually awakened. Because Alan Watts was Watts and he was nobody else. He was a man who stuck to his convictions, who was a man who practiced in one way or the other what he preached, and he was willing to admit his flaws. And I think there is something about that, it being honest with yourself and being honest with others. And this is what made him such a fantastic teacher and also a fascinating man. Whatever his flaws, there is no doubt that he lived a life that he wanted to live, not a life that somebody imposed on him. And near the end of the book, he says, just as I am not in competition with university professors for their jobs, I am not in competition with gurus or psychotherapists for their work with individual students or patients. I see my work simply as one of philosophical and spiritual stimulation and refer to those who want to work with a guru or psychotherapist to others for whose existence as essential partners in what I am doing, I am most grateful. And this is a lesson for us 
is the life that you're living the life that you want to live, the life that you have decided to live, and not a life that somebody has imposed on you? To go back to that story that Watts tells or that thought experiment that Alan Watts has about the dream. If you could dream 75 years and you could dream any dream, what would you dream? And for Watts, it was a life that he was never going to regret. It was a life that he lived. It was a life that he forged, a destiny that he forged for himself. And that's a lesson for us. Whether you're a creative, whether you are an artist, whether you are an entrepreneur, whether you believe this universe is an illusion, the reality of it is that this life is short. You are here one moment and you are gone the next moment. The challenge for us this week are two things. One is there are different ways that you can implement for meditation. And this is something that Watts realizes when he says, Thus, after a few years of experiment with prayer, of trying quite earnestly to get into a Christian frame of mind under the under the dangerous assumption that it might be good for me, I went back to meditation, especially walking meditation, which I've always preferred to long periods of sitting. For one reason, when walking, there is no need for others to know that you are meditating, and thus to feel guilty or embarrassed for not doing likewise. I personally am not a huge walker, but before I recorded this episode, I went for a walk in the afternoon, and that was very helpful to just clear my mind and think about what I was going to say. And the second is to be in the present moment. And, and it is something that Watts discovers in the book Abandonment of the Divine Providence by J.P. de Cossade, who is a 17th century Jesuit. And so when he quotes his book, it says, If we knew how to greet each moment as the manifestation of the divine will, we would find in it all the heart could desire. The present moment is always filled with infinite treasures. It contains more than you are capable of receiving. The divine will is an abyss of which the present moment is the entrance. Plunge fearlessly therein and you will find it more boundless than your desires. And with that, I'll wrap. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you're not already subscribed, do subscribe and leave a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It helps tremendously. Till next week, peace. Peace.